Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest or guests bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guests are filmmakers Vanessa and Joseph Winter. Their debut feature film, Deadstream, just hit Shudder. And they also created the segment To Hell and Back in VHS 99, which is coming out this week on Shudder when this episode drops. Welcome to the show, guys! Dude, thank you. Thanks for having yeah. us. It's a privilege to be here. Thanks for coming. We're really excited to talk with you. But how wild is that, though? You're two movies literally like within like, what, a, a, a week of each other? Isn't it about a week? Pretty weird. Yeah, because we, we premiered Deadstream at South By in March. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we would not have believed someone if they were to even float the idea that we may have two movies coming out in the same year, let alone just a couple of weeks from each other That's on the wild. same platform. It's just wild the way like the twists and turns that have come since then yeah so cool that is so cool um but take us back to the very beginning how did you both get introduced to the horror genre as a kid um i didn't grow up watching a lot of horror movies i um i always loved horror like it when i was four i was obsessed with the beetlejuice cartoon Mm -hmm. and i had a bunch of like ghost story books that were well worn that i kept in my room My brother and I would catch like the Hollywood movies, but we were just kind of culturally isolated. I I grew up in a really small town in Wyoming and our Uh, parents were fairly conservative about media. Um, So uh we just, I just didn't have a ton of exposure. Um, So it really wasn't until college when I really fell hard for, for horror, but also cinema in general. Um, But I, I, I was always weird. I mean, I was always the girl that had to be a, in a scary costume every Halloween. My mom was like super supportive of that. She helped me make like <laughs> clay 
snakes to put in my hair to be Medusa when I was in elementary school. And so, I mean, yeah, it was so do you have pictures of that? I just want to see what that costume looked like. That is so badass. (laughs) Dude, I I'll see if she can dig it up. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, for me it was um my parents were I don't know why they let me watch some of the things that we watched, but I from my earliest memories, I was watching horror movies with my parents and um halloween themed birthdays um every year even though my birthday was in november it was just something it was just a really big part of me and um i think the thing that made me want to be on the filmmaking side of horror is we rented the making of thriller of michael jackson's thriller from blockbuster (gasps) when i was very little and in it you can see these zombies after the shoot peeling the latex off of their faces and i asked my parents what is that can you find out what that is? And so they started just calling people that they knew, trying to oh, figure wow. out. And my dad was like writing, taking notes for me, trying to help me. And I must have been five or something, but I still remember it so vividly. And and that just has stuck with me ever since. So, um, I mean, back then it was, I, I saw Creepshow at a very early age. And um, that remains in my top three of all time. I watched a movie called The Gate, from 1987. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot. Monster Squad, Silver Bullet. And um, those were my main four in really early years. And then when I met Vanessa in college, she for sure would have been like me with the parents that introduced you to horror early on. Like, no doubt. Because it was like waiting to be unleashed when we started diving <laughs> into some <laughs> movies. Although you claim you claim to be have been scared by nothing. As a kid. Oh, really? Yeah. I I don't know that that would have been me. That's not most people. I don't I don't know what my problem was, but um, <laughs> it was just fun. It just didn't give me the it, it, like the being afraid was kind of a thrill. Like my dad, after watching a scary movie, would tell my sister and I to go turn off a light down the hallway and then we'd have to run back in the dark. And it was never it was always just a fun feeling. Huh. And so, Vanessa, were you scared as a kid, though? Like, did you get did you get scared easily? I mean, cause you didn't have a lot of horror stuff, but you had some horror media. Did you get scared easily? Uh, I probably said like a decent amount. Like, I really enjoy it. But I there's like little I would always catch things on TV, like parts of The Shining. Or I think okay. I'm pretty sure it was the movie Alligator that I, sh- I saw clips of as a kid. And there's one that I haven't tracked down, which I'm I'm pretty sure has killer bunnies in it or sh- sheep or something there was some other kind of animal horror that i would catch little clips of um and then i'm also pretty sure that i caught glimpses of uh shoot what's the name of the the baby movie um it's alive it's alive oh <laughs> yeah i was like i'm not there's a lot of babies no, I, knew. <laughs> I knew he would get it <laughs> Yeah, so there was like imagery like that that I would see see and get really scared. And my brother and I were all about creating really good atmospheres for the Sixth Sense or the Ring mm. or something. And then we would hide under each other's beds and scare each other. So there was a fun element to it. But like, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I guess fairly easily. Like, I think I stayed like after watching the Ring, I think I thought about it for a few hours before falling asleep. And I was a teenager, so. Well, I have to admit, when I saw The Ring as a teenager, that was like the most scared after the movie. Like one of 
a few experiences that I'd had since I was a kid. That's just a really effective movie. It's a very effective movie. Uh, Cause that came out early two thousands and I would have been, I guess in my, wasn't it early two thousands? I think I would have been in my twenties and that still affected me. Although I was the asshole that would call my friends be like seven days. <laughs> yeah. Know? You fucking suck. Like why, I, every time you tell that story, I'm like, you were mean. I wouldn't be so bad at you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, okay, so it, it sounds like uh, Joseph, you were not scared as a kid. Is that is that transitioned into adulthood? Do horror movies not scare you at all? Okay, so to clarify, scared, yes, but it was fun. It but was fun. like okay, scared, with very few exceptions. Yes, that's how I feel now. So when I watch a movie like It Follows, I haven't seen Smile yet, but I've heard that it has the same kind of ability that It Follows yeah. had. But when I saw it in the theater it did something like for the first time in a long time i had felt um i guess like kind of dreading the next image if i thought that something was coming and um i thought about it for a while and it was still that same pleasant feeling it wasn't like oh my gosh i'm afraid to walk in the bathroom and turn on the light or anything like that but it was uh yeah it's the same thing i feel like it's probably even less now just because i've seen so much stuff that it takes even more to make me feel a little bit spooky scared. Yeah. Home invasion movies will always get Oof. to me. They'll never get to me. Home invasion is the least scary. Why? It's oh, disturbing. It's, like... <laughs> it's disturbing, but it doesn't scare because I feel like I'm way more likely to see a ghost in a mirror than have someone enter my house and try to kill me. How? Interesting. Or likely you've never why. even seen a ghost. How many people, <laughs> I can't, we've never talked about this before. Is it, I'm saying this out loud for the first time. <laughs> How many people do you know who have had their home invaded in like some kind of scary way? I'm going to guess maybe one. How many people do you know in your life who have claimed to have seen a ghost and mean it? Way more than one. And I feel like, I just feel like I... You get that feeling about to turn on a light in a bathroom after a scary movie or something where I feel like not that something's out to get me, just that you might see something like that's the feeling that scares me, not the actual danger part baked into ghost horror to me is a feeling of danger long before you even know a motivation. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in a movie, as soon as there's an apparition or as soon as the music becomes a certain thing and you can tell that there's going to be a sighting in the conjuring it does this long before you know that even most of the ghosts that they're seeing have no ill intention it's really scary because they're ghosts so that anyway that's what makes me do yeah, whatever you say like i do not want to see a strange man in my basement <laughs> and that's either real. <laughs> the strangers is one of the scariest movies i've ever seen <laughs> in my opinion Ugh. i'd say disturbing yeah. I'm not trying to fight with anybody. I'm just saying. Yeah. Oh, no, no, it's, but it's really interesting because it's it's so interesting because I feel like a lot of the time when we talk to people, they talk about how home invasion is the scariest to them. And like, I feel very similarly. So it's really interesting because it's like always like, oh, well, home invasion can actually happen and ghosts aren't real or is usually kind of like the conclusion a lot of people say. I have seen a ghost or I have had experiences, so I'm less likely to feel that way. What was I think I have? I don't fucking know. But anyway, 
it's an interesting perspective. Well, and I was I was nodding along while you're talking, Joseph, because um I I don't believe in ghosts. I don't I don't believe in that at all. However, ghost movies are the ones that typically will scare me the most. I'm thinking back to like Insidious or even or Terrified or even Hereditary, which isn't ghosts but is supernatural. Like I don't believe in any of that kind of stuff, but that's the stuff that will fuck me up. So. I get it. I'm 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 right there with you. <laughs> well, since you guys are the experts, do you think it's and you've had time to analyze other people? Do you feel like ghosts are scarier because you can't actually physically fight them? Like, is that is that part of it? I do. I do wonder. I, th- I think a lot of times it's because they can do things that like you're not expecting. Like a lot of times, a lot of the the stuff that that scares people that we've talked to about ghosts is that it just happens unexpectedly or there's or there's nothing you can really do about it. Like other than picking up and moving, it's like, you're pretty much kind of fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, with people you can fight back, like you're saying, but with the ghosts, it's a little bit harder to figure out how to deal with, how to deal with them. And again, like they defy the laws of physics. And so it's a little bit more like something like something opens or something falls. Like it's a lot more terrifying because you don't know what, what did that and like what the source is. So I think because those things kind of defy what we know of in terms of what's possible in the real world, real world, it's, it is scarier. We've also talked with a lot of people that um, were raised Catholic, whether, whether they still are or not, but they're raised Catholic. And there's a lot of that supernatural fear baked into that because that comes up an awful lot on the podcast like well i was raised catholic so that's why this terrifies me and that that i think comes up a whole lot we were uh, yeah. we, we both had mormon upbringings and the the oh. cultural as i mean it's very um your average mormon person will say oh i like scary movies except for the demonic stuff mm. And the reason why is because that's also part of it you hear those stories like told in real life like firsthand, like I encountered this person that had this, it was clearly they had a demon. So um, there's that aspect, I guess, growing up, whether I was aware of it or not, but just growing up hearing that this is fact, like this part of the horror, I guess the the horror genre, this is the corner of it that's real. And it just felt more real to me than somebody. It, it was cool seeing Jason, I'm like whack trees with with sleeping bags, of someone in it it's like that was cool but it, i didn't think that would happen to me but i thought maybe yeah. i could see a demon there's a cool like sub genre of mormon lore you could say which is more mormon youths i guess you could say typically go on missions a two-year mission when they turn 19 um mm-hmm. where things have changed now but when i was growing up you would leave and not have very much contact with home so you were fairly isolated in whatever country you were around the world and so there's lots of supernatural stories that come back out of that um, oh, that are imagine. often like demonically related, mm-hmm. and they're pretty fun. Like they're pretty they're pretty scary because they're very first person. Oh, and um, especially yeah. if especially when these kids are sent to foreign lands where the culture is completely different and they're immersed into it, and like she's saying, they're not they, speaking they're the language very well, and yeah, cut off from everything, and so they they encounter cultural things that they're not used to, and it they will oftentimes project like a satanic aspect to it, which makes for some really spooky stories when you're talking to someone who's like, and then I walked into a house and this person looked at me and started yelling these chants. And like, it's just really, yeah, it's actually really fun. (laughs) Wait, did either of you go on a mission? No, no. 
I was going to do out any story I, any creepy stories. I know. That. I wish we, we, I have wish we all had kinds of other people's mission hand, stories. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Ooh, that's interesting. Anyway, before I fall into that rabbit hole of thinking about <laughs> mission stories. But then I'm curious, Vanessa, what is a movie that has scared you recently or given you kind of like the feelings of childhood fear that you had? Um, that's a really good question. I This is going to be so weird, but <laughs> the thing that scared me probably the most in the last 10 years was the witch trailer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? Such a good trailer. It is and a good trailer. I was like just watching it alone, like on my phone in bed. And man, it's just so bizarre. It's just like everything has this foreboding, icky feeling to it. And yeah. And it's also I, telling I pulled you. up the cover. It's extra tight. <laughs> and like the movie was great. Lived, I love the movie, but the trailer. But the trailer <laughs> literally has text. Feels like something you shouldn't be watching. Like while you're seeing the imagery, you know? Dude, but yeah. that wasn't that like for me, it was like just the like the milk blood or something like yes. i don't know the peekaboo where the kid vanishes oh, like yeah. th- there's just so many weird little moments in that trailer that that are are now coming back to me the moment you said that i was like what was that trailer and then they just sort of like started popping in and i just i remember that going oh wow what is what is going on here yeah people's faces yeah i think i had a pretty good experience with it follows too um cool. we saw it on like a really rainy really rainy night and the theater we saw it in was really thumping the music oh wow super super loud so i had a pretty good atmospheric experience with that Mm -hmm. the conjuring i had a really fun experience with it was partly the people we were i one of my best friends is a costume designer for film she sat next to me and she took off her glasses because she was getting scared so be like a little bit blurry and so yeah, yeah i don't it was know a particularly it got, good movie it got me yeah that for that the bedroom scene is pretty it's pretty good that's where incredible. it's on top of the, like the wardrobe that moment or the, well i like the one before the lead up the the nightmare between the two sisters and yes yeah yes. Okay, yeah so, like with something's behind the door or she's saying like yeah. oh my gosh there's something like there standing over in the corner i've really like, re- watched that scene probably like 50 times there's so it's much so good i rewatched all those movies recently and was like they're just so good they're just gonna scare me every time i watch them even though i know what's going to happen they're always going to be terrifying do you guys have a recent one like something you just barely saw I'm making my Halloween list. Well, I'm going I'm going through a phase of YouTube horror stuff that I'm watching <laughs> that is giving me like and it's the first time in a long time something has given me nightmares that I've watched. So, but it's like analog YouTube like videos, not movies necessarily, but they've got like really cursed energy and cursed vibes. And that's been like really that's been my Halloween like watching has been like weird YouTube series and things like that. Ooh, cool. Smile made me jump like a lot like it, it didn't really affect me after the movie was over but while watching it it was definitely a movie that like had me on edge there's a couple really deceptively smart jump scares in it i am a big jump scare fan when it's the art of the jump scare it, yeah it totally yeah. is an art. and i think that it, the really crappy ones have given it a bad name where yep. now you can have a jump scare in your movie without people being like it has jump scares therefore it sucked but i i love a good jump scare that movie definitely understands the art of misdirection and, and definitely goosing you at the right moment. It just yeah. loved it. I, I actually screamed in the movie theater and that, that doesn't happen very often for me. Yay. I'm excited to go see it. Another really good one. It's a couple years old, but it's found footage it's called Gunji M Haunted Asylum. Oh, and that yeah. has some of the best jump scares. Have you guys seen it? It's, no, on, it's, on, we, our it's on our list. It's so it good. It has some of the best jump scares I've ever seen. Like it's, 
incredible. So it's, and it's, it's one of the scariest movies I've also seen in a long time. So definitely check it out. It's cool. really good. Yeah. But speaking about fan footage and, and jump scares and that kind of stuff, can you tell us just a little bit about Deadstream? Deadstream is about a, a canceled PewDiePie mm. type YouTuber live streamer that is now staging a comeback event to get his followers and his sponsors back. And for this live stream event, he's going to spend one night alone in a haunted house. His whole, his whole gimmick is that he faces his fears and live streams them. But this one is the scariest thing for him yet. So he stages this big event at a abandoned haunted house in the woods in Utah, and things go great for him. Yeah, <laughs> it goes incredibly bad for him, violently bad. And um, hopefully people enjoy seeing this guy get beat to a pulp by ghosts. One of my favorite tweets I saw this weekend was like, I've started watching this movie and, I are, and it's been one minute and I already want to punch this guy. 10 out of 10, already excited to keep watching. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's one of those things, man. If you don't like, if you're not into Sean, it could be, it could be a really tough thing to get through. But I think if you, if you can latch on to the charm that we tried to attach to his persona, then I think you can have a really good time with it. So the thing that like immediately struck me and had me rolling when I first saw this back, it was at, was it was out South by, right? Isn't that where? Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. That's where I saw it. So many festivals. Uh, but the thing that like immediately hooked me in it is that this is a character that I have seen so many times on YouTube that you just nailed the, the feel of. Like I was thinking back, yes, PewDiePie. And I was thinking back to like, all the people that something bad happens and they have to go do that kind of apology video months later and, you know, try to redeem their, their persona. But like, this is a, I just, I'm curious how many YouTube celebrities and people did you have to watch to like nail the feel of this character so perfectly? A lot. Oh, God, too, too many. I want to say too many, but the funny thing is like, the more you start watching, the more, at least for me personally, I started really appreciating the art that oh, goes cool. into being like a talking head basically and i started realizing that especially some of these guys are really brilliant comedians mm -hmm. um and so as i was writing i just kept getting more and more intimidated by the challenge of writing somebody that you could actually be watchable yeah. for 90 minutes it was um so i mean we laugh like oh too many of them like like as though you know we look down on it and the thing is that's how we approached it unfortunately but as we started um, latching on to certain individuals, like, oh, this is a little bit of Sean, so I'm going to watch his stuff. I, at least for myself, got attached to them, and I didn't realize that until I started defending a couple of them sometimes a little bit and realizing, what am I doing? What? <laughs> I've, really, I've really gotten attached to some of these guys, and like on my lunch breaks at work, I yep. was watching them for research and quotes, but I actually was like, oh, I wonder what this new video is. And, and and that's when we started talking about it and really realized that we will we will have failed this character if it is a parody and there is no aspect to this person that anyone would ever watch. So we we hoped that when people watch it, even if they wouldn't watch Sean, they would at least believe that there was an audience for him somewhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can you share some of the people that you latched on to? You don't have to if it's late, yeah. but I'm just curious like what um, YouTubers you kind of gravitated towards. Let me say, let me put it, let me say this. I won't say like, these are people that I'm really big fans of and stand by the things that they've done or said, but I, yeah, yeah. these are the people that we 
latched onto as like Sean inspirations. There yeah. was PewDiePie for sure. And mm-hmm. one of the things about him, um, he was like a joke to us. We didn't know anything about him. But when we started watching him, there's some things he does. He makes fun of himself in a way that's like, he goes after himself in uncomfortable ways, like in ways that are genuinely cringy. And he'll like, he'll play clips of him on TV, on Conan or something, going in for a high five, but then it's a weird handshake, fist bump. And it's like genuinely really uncomfortable. And he'll play it as a cringe video and just make fun of himself. And you can't help but think this is like, this is so endearing in some way, how much he makes fun of himself and puts himself out there. That was one of the people that I started to feel like, oh, I get PewDiePie. I get why people are watching him and feel loyal to him and feel like he's going to go on there and tell them, like be real with them about what he's experiencing. The other person is um, he goes by iDubs and he, he has a lot of controversy around him, but his sarcasm, his straight face, sarcastic delivery, he does fake unboxing videos where he just opens junk that his fans send him and his commentary on things was just so funny. We tried to pull his, his self-deprecating humor is pretty sharp. Yeah. Once you try to replicate it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like hard to replicate. It's, it's like that kind of thing yeah. where he'll just off the cuff, make a reference about his age and, um, it, like and it's just so funny and then the other person is a guy named houston jones which we have to credit your dad for yes because your dad sent a link to you in the middle of the night i got a text <laughs> from my dad that was just like watch this had nothing he didn't know about deadstream that we were working on this thing and i opened it and it was a video of a guy shooting himself in the nuts with paintballs oh, and um and i I was watching him like, oh, this is it. This is Sean. Like, this is this guy talks so fast, really over the top energy and does these crazy inflict harm on himself stunts. Mm-hmm. But like he was bringing to it the way that we want. He was bringing the energy, the energy, the yes. right energy. So, that we, so we yeah. took the energy of him. But he's the- much more endearing than Sean. Cutting in between my toes with sandpaper so nobody else has to. Oh, <laughs> That's my, God. oh my God. four days ago blowing my leg off with a potato cannon so nobody else has to oh my god things have escalated since we've checked in with him (laughs) so i just by the way i did check in with him recently and the stuff that he's had to start posting i guess to be different is like straight up torture where i'm not even i don't even want to see it like it's (laughs) that's like the thumbnails are like bruises on his body and like horrific like he's hurting himself badly for mm-hmm. views which is sad. i mean that's the way it seems to go with with youtube to try to like as you said to kind of find that new niche and to like keep getting viewers the more and more stuff you have to do to like do that is is ridiculous because <sighs> i remember i i it was like this time where i was really big and watching youtube stars and on, on mine it was a lot of like uh my drunk kitchen or even the try guys which are going through mm-hmm their own little bit of PR nightmare right now. But it's like all these people are Markiplier who is sort of like with PewDiePie and that whole stuff, like the Um, kind of exaggerated persona you have to create in order to like keep getting people to come back to you is, I mean, the YouTube burnout's quite a thing because of that. We we've known a couple of influencers and the complaint is that you become a slave to it Mm -hmm. and it it's very soul sucking and you kind of um it does bring out the worst in people but you can see how they got there when you when you're looking at like the pressure on them to put out this content on a daily basis even a weekly basis is just 
it's just so much. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we had a couple of friends that worked on, um, a docu documentary about a couple famous personalities, YouTube personalities. And the thing that kept coming back is their schedule just really is grueling. And it just really is kind of punishing to put out that much content. So I think that's something that we tried to bring to Sean's character too, yeah. is we wanted it to feel like somebody who cared a lot about their work. Their craft. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, because I, I know in terms of like the film editing, you both edited this movie. How much of a pain in the ass was it? Because there's so many different camera angles from like the the camera that's on Sean to the one that's on his face to like the stuff around. How how much of a nightmare and how much footage did you have to go through to get something that was cohesive? Uh, the number of cameras wasn't the biggest problem. In fact, I almost wish there would have been more cameras <laughs> because it takes place in real time. So I think one right. of the biggest challenges was just to, yeah, cut around that real time aspect um, when we needed to lose some jokes or change the timing. I think technically speaking, action cameras aren't, on the same level as cinema cameras. So just dealing with their weird naming system and files and oh, yeah. that kind of stuff in post-production oh. was a big challenge, especially for our post-production supervisor, Jared Cook, who was also the DP and producer. He, Hats off to him for being a freaking genius. He's the real MVP. So I want to say this. So Jared Cook, um, shout out to him. He We would call him, Jared, it's linking to the wrong clips. Like it was, it was this way every time we opened the project. It would, it no. would link to different, every day they, the clips would start over in their naming system or like every time you put in a new card. So in oh, no. uh, Premiere, it would point to the wrong clip and it was oh, just a nightmare no. in that way to work with. But I also want to give credit to Annie uh, Eskander. 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 Um, she was the assistant editor and she had an impossible job of organizing this footage along the way. And she did a great job. And she was also there for us throughout, like way past when she was getting paid. Like she was no longer getting paid minimum wage to do the movie. And she was just like doing whatever she needed to do to help us with the edit. Um, so yeah, editing, it was a, it was a real technical challenge, especially since, I mean, you were saying you wish there were more cameras. I do not share that <laughs> opinion. <laughs> Sometimes this was like nine cameras. We we rolled them all at once every time we did it so that it, we could try to edit it that way. But it became a nightmare because the the editing software could not play back this stuff in real time. Oh, wow. So there were challenges in that way. So basically this kind of unconventional movie, um, it was just not conducive to editing quickly. But it looks so effortlessly oh. done. Like, oh, thank you. <laughs> it's it's a it's a and that, that's like because I've I've seen this movie like three times now, and this last time I was really clued into to like just how technical you had to be because it is real time. That's what I realized. Like, I wasn't really thinking about it when I was had my you know critics hat on. I was like thinking about the all that other stuff, and this time I was just like enjoying the movie. This last time, and I was like, wow, this really isn't real time, and that just must have been a complete bitch to like edit. <laughs> That's that. That's just what was going through my mind the entire time. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that compliment. Yeah, we do. That's all I'll <laughs> say about it. I always feel like I always feel weird after really complaining about something that I'm actually really grateful worked out. Um, but like, there are real complaints throughout. I mean, it, it was a very difficult production and post production process. So thank you for saying that. Um, but then also briefly, because VHS 99 is coming out just around the corner uh what can you tell our listeners what your segment is about are you able to talk about it a little bit 
Um, I think we've gotten approved uh, about two things, which is the first is they go to the characters go to hell, literally. Okay. So it's it's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty uh, jump the shark. Maybe for jump some people. Sh- we thought it was going to be the Jump the Shark segment for sure. <laughs> it seems like it's being embraced. Some people are embracing it. Yeah. Um, the second spoiler that we've been approved to talk about is my favorite creature from the segment, which is a woman that's half woman, half maggot, who our creature designer ter- like coined the term worm maid. And that became her nickname. Oh, no. I want a tattoo of her on my body <laughs> right now. I love her already. I can't wait to see the worm made. I'm uh, going to eat those words probably when I see her. I'm like, oh, that's disgusting. But I love the sound of her already. It's pretty disgusting. <laughs> Fuck uh, yes. The performer was like so badass. She, I, this was my favorite part of, of the whole shoot. But she had to have her arms pinned down to her body in order to perform it. Oh, my so God. So she like runs somehow slithers slash runs down this hill in this arch like a anyway it's, she's it's pretty so, much a little she's awesome cliff. she also played the bathtub corpse in deadstream but <laughs> hell, she, yeah. hell yeah queen shit she plays a bathtub corpse a worm maid she's her name's Ariel Lee. i just want to say yeah. her name she's amazing if you're ever looking yeah. in utah she's a great stunt performer Oh yeah, because we th- the screeners just came in today, and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. So I'm like, I'm really excited. Oh, I can also well, tell you tonally, it's um, similar to Deadstream. It's a completely different type of group of people, but it's it's the same kind of like silly fun. Probably even more comedy, I would say. Hell yeah. Oh hell yeah, fuck yeah. Okay, so Joseph and Vanessa, we talked about horror movies and Deadstream and VHS ninety nine. Speaking 99. of comedies, yeah. Speaking of comedies, um, <laughs> what movie did you did you bring with you got today to discuss? Don't look now, the masterpiece, nineteen seventy three, starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. So, uh, for those that aren't familiar, here is a quick synopsis pulled from IMDb. Um, in Don't Look Now, a married couple grieving the recent death of their young daughter are in Venice when they encounter two elderly sisters, one of whom is psychic and brings a warning from beyond. So I know this is a, a this is slightly a different take from, from what we normally do when we do Scar for Life, because I know you both saw this together as adult, I believe. So so that's not a it's not a movie that scared you as a kid. But can you tell our listeners why this was the movie you you both gravitated to and why this is your Scar for Life pick? Um I think it was uh it was the movie when you guys asked the question, it was a movie that popped into our minds where I remembered us both being in the same room, being scared. I don't think that we were officially dating yet. No, I we can't. Weren't. I can't remember the exact, but the how exact we, timeline. How we got there, though, is that thinking back to our childhoods, because we had such different childhoods, mm-hmm. there was no common movie that right. scared us both. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So we went to what's the first scary movie we saw together and had a shared scary experience that actually stayed with us hell yeah yeah and we just uh we went into it really blind um we were at a friend's house looking through her dvd collection and joseph grabbed it and was like what about this movie and i think her response was like eh, hmm. uh, she didn't she say my dad hates this movie or something I, like I that? don't know like she just didn't really like it but we were like 70s donald sutherland yeah because yeah. we had seen invasion of the body snatchers mm. from the 70s with donald sutherland and we were just i i at least was really into the 70s and the aesthetic of it and so i was eating it all up and so yeah we just 
we just took it and we took it to, I lived in this, um, this apartment complex that had this basement that no one really used except to store bicycles. And I had converted it into a, a screening room, but it was just a, an SD TV, um, had like a VCR and stuff. And we went down there and just popped it in. Not which, really. which sounds like heresy, like when you rewatch it, because <laughs> it's so freaking beautiful. Like every frame is so beautiful. But it just but, it just shows you like we didn't know what it was. We didn't know anything. Now, everybody who has seen it or has heard of it knows of a specific moment in the movie. We did not know of that moment. So we we just had no idea what we were pressing play on, which which actually added to this experience that has stayed with us since. So what was the experience of of going in cold and seeing this movie for the first time, not knowing the, how it ends? And we're going to spoil it so we, we can talk all about that. But what was what 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 was the your feeling? What was your experience watching this film? Yeah, um, I think for me, it's one of those feelings that I'm always chasing in horror, which is just to be genuinely shocked Mm -hmm. but that shock also to feel like oh it was also inevitable this weird and i i can't i have a hard time thinking of a movie that the ending is just so bizarre and at least for me landed so horrifying i remember even as the moment was happening i was like this is the most bizarre (laughs) ending but i am so terrified and I can feel it like this is this is getting to me on every level. My experience with it was um, as we were watching it, it was clearly a slow burn. It was so obvious. Mm-hmm. This is what this movie is. It's taking its time. It's simmering. It's beautiful imagery. Um, the color. I was just taking in the color palette and yeah. the texture of the film and the the music. There was mostly no music, but sometimes they would have music over this these montages and uh, I just was, I was just like, yeah, let's have this slow burn movie that kind of hints at um, some supernatural. It's kind of like the shining light is kind of how I would describe it, where the shining, shining light. Like, it's like, well, it's like a guy that maybe he has the shining, like that kind of thing, or he's yeah. seeing, what do you call it? Premonitions. He's having premonitions, mm-hmm. but refusing to accept that that's what it is. But you can clearly see that he's sensitive, but it's not really hitting you over the head. It's just taking right. you on a slow journey. And then the color, the way it's using the color red and the way yeah. he's seeing these certain motifs, I realized at the very end, it was all for this moment. Every single thing that happened was for this moment at the very end. And I did not see it coming. And it it was, um, should we jump to the end? Or is that is that going to be a special? Whatever you want. Yeah, if it's part of let's, your let's first time it. experience watching it, let's do it. Yeah. Well, do you want to describe what happens at the end? You go what for it. Want? Okay. So this guy in the movie, um, his daughter drowned in a red raincoat. And um, he just has this image of her he keeps thinking about throughout. And throughout the film, you hear that there have been these murders in Venice where he is. It's just kind of a background thing that's going on out of the corner of his eye. And also in the in the background that he doesn't even see, you sometimes see a hooded little girl in a red coat and she'll just like run around a corner and it starts to become more and more prominent throughout And when it catches his eye, there's just something he knows it's not his daughter, but you can tell that he has some kind of hope in him that maybe it is. But it's it's like this bizarre, it's hard to explain, but you can see that when he's chasing after it at the very end at night, he hears her crying and it just 
there's something about it that's pulling him toward it with like some kind of hope. And you hear this like little girl, it sounds like a little girl crying. You feel this weird hope for him too. Maybe this, is, I remember thinking this the yeah. first time I saw it, like, is there, is this different than your experience? I, I don't think I had that hope that it was ever real, but this is like, I'm keep going. In my mind with the cinema language of it, there's no way it was his daughter, right? Like, you know that it's not, but it's like, leading up towards something and he can't help but chase after this little girl and then he finds her in this really dark dead end standing in a corner like Blair Witch Project ending style and her back is to him and he walks over to her and says hey it's okay it's okay like a like a dad to a little girl all of a sudden she turns around and looks at him not a little girl at all it's actually an old woman an old a uh, little woman with the most unsettling face oh, not a made-up so face not a horror movie like makeup guy just a real person that is so unsettling and she turns around with a smile on her face shaking her head back and forth as though to say uh, uh, uh. <laughs> it's like i can't even make sense of this expression that she has uh, uh, uh. like that's how yeah. it looks and then from her pocket pulls out a knife and slashes his throat. And then his whole, it's kind of like his whole recent life starts flashing before his eyes while he's dying over music. That's not death music. It's a different kind of eerie music. And it just, and then the movie ends basically uh, like a, a one short scene later. And we just were not expecting that. Like it sent, it sent something crazy through me that I haven't experienced that way. I've experienced jump scares. I've never experienced a scare that had a two hour buildup just for that moment. Yeah. Well, and the atmosphere is just so, so good. It's uh, all the characters, the way they're filmed have a real menacing feel to them. Yeah. Um. There's a lot of just bit parts, I guess, not even, I guess they're like minor characters where you have a priest and you have a medium and her sister and just the like inspector a, a is hotel. Weird. Yeah. The inspector, like everybody is just so unsettling, but in a way that's very thoughtful that when you look back on the plot of the movie, everybody's motivations make sense mm -hmm. and their eccentricities, I guess you could call it um, work for the story. And like, I, I think there's only been only one other movie that, so this movie also messes with time a little bit, yes. like it intercuts um, with past and future things. And yeah, they're uh, Solaris, which was, is that 1979? Oh, the Russian 70s. early 70s? I'm, I'm way sure. up. That movie, it's not the same storyline at all, but it's the only other movie I can think of that terrified me as 72. much. 72. Um, with its atmosphere. And so I think just this, the foreboding of near death and don't look now, just water falling, drowning. There's like a, I think maybe one of my favorite scenes is Donald Sutherland plays a, a restorer, building mm -hmm. restorer. Like yep. ancient building restoration or something. Yeah. yeah. And he's trying to put up an old statue and loses his balance and he's kind of like hugging this the statue with a grotesque face and their faces are kind of bumping up against each other yeah. and it's so it's so fun but it's so you just feel like every frame means something 
but also and this you don't know and what everything is like coming coming to get them yeah like each thing stands out as like this person looks suspicious don't know what it means yep. this color i haven't seen the color red now all of a sudden the mom has red boots what does it mean i don't know even this second time through i didn't know what it meant because the mom did have these red boots for a big part of the movie and i was still wondering like what does it mean but it so clearly means something because the color red is so like it's so specific it's it's not yeah accident. the color red is very foreboding they they make it so clear at the beginning with that this like art slide that starts bleeding that basically starts bleeding, yes. yeah well and, and that kind of ties into the themes of like past present and future all kind of colliding together because his, you know the daughter has the red um raincoat and she's out playing while he's and he's analyzing this photo of this church and there is a person sitting there with again a red rain slicker and that kind of image repeats throughout the entire movie where it's like is this a, an image from the future is this like an image that they they snapped of their daughter while she was in church like what is going on in the scene and it just hangs over the movie with such a, a deadly pall that it's it's just it's so masterful well it asks so many questions and i know that you know joseph you're talking about how like everyone is like introduced and you're like everyone's suspicious like i'm ready for everyone to have something terrible in their hearts and their minds even if it's not like murder it's like they want it everything it's like you have so many questions and so many things happening and you're like all right how does this fit in how does this fit in and it's like they're playing with expectations because you're like i have no idea where this is going because i i had seen this once before and it not my favorite scenario because I watched it with my father who thought this was the most boring piece of shit he's ever seen. And the whole movie, he was like talking about how boring it was. And I couldn't like concentrate on it as much. Like I knew it was something special at the end because I was quiet and I I was just sitting there like trying to digest and process. It's a movie you have to like process really after you watch it, you're like, wait a second, I need to buffer and like really think about it. He was immediately like, that was so boring. Like, nothing happened. Mm. And I was like, everything just happened. (laughs) So many things just (laughs) happened in this movie. And it, because like, I mean, I'm going to bring this up now. Everyone talks about the sex scene in this movie between Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, which is like gorgeous sex scene that everyone's like, oh yeah, it was like so realistic. And it's like, you know, it's like this notorious sex scene that I think is, like, the best depiction of sex I've ever seen on screen. Like, it's authentic sex that feels like it's not, like, this kind of idealized moment. It's not some, like, kind of, you know, idealized what sex should be like. It's a couple, but it's also intercut with them getting dressed after sex and just, like, being normal people after sex. And it's such an interesting way that the film presents sexuality between a couple and then intercuts what after sex looks like for the couple and pushing the time together in such an interesting way and having this like very obviously explicit, but very interesting sex scene of them just rolling around together. And it's just fascinating. It's really, you know, people talk about the sex scene, but I'm like, but did they actually think about what the sex scene is like in the context of the movie? It's just really fascinating this time around thinking about that. Yeah. It's mostly like the duration of it that people want to yeah, because it's unusually long. And and obviously that stands out when you're watching it. The I admit the first time I watched it, the duration of it and like just how much it shows like was the thing that stood out to me the most. The second time through what you're saying was standing out to me. Yeah. There's this weird like Donald Sutherland is trying to figure out what to do with his arms at a certain point. Like he um, <laughs> and they start laughing <laughs> just a split second in the montage. 
And uh, it's like, um, it's trying to be real. And I realize in this moment, like it's trying this relationship, it's all working toward um, showing this life after loss, yeah. Uh, what yeah, that yeah. looks like. And it just helped emotionally with what they were currently experiencing. And then what Donald Sutherland would experience later when he thinks his wife's starting to lose her mind and like the impact of that on him. I knew this movie was going to hit differently for me because we hadn't watched it since we've had kids together. I was oh. actually talking to Terry and like, I wonder what this movie is like when you have children, like watching this as a parent, like what that's like. So I'm glad you brought that up because I'm very curious like what that was like. Yeah, just specifically with the sex scene, I think that there was like this, I'm pretty sure this was intentional, but it was kind of, they were trying to capture this moment of healing or mm-hmm. like- yeah. It was supposed to be a big moment in their lives, not just a slice of life. This is every like an everyday sex scene. Like this is something that's happened after they've had a hard time connecting. And I just felt so much sympathy for them. Like just this idea of as a couple trying to cope with something that's accidentally kind of been like pulling you apart. Um, but obviously both people are experiencing a deep amount of pain. So anyway, I think it's brilliant. And I think that they, this whole movie, I appreciated the little touches of trying to make the couple feel like a real couple. Yeah. Even before that, the, the sex scene, there's the moment where they're, they're getting, they're in the the bathroom and she's in the tub. He is just taking a shower. They're just sort of standing around naked together. Just, just, it's, it felt very lived in. She's kind of teasing him that he's gotten, you know, love handles and he's like quickly running to the the scale and they're just being very playful. There's a, a feeling of authenticity and a, a very lived in relationship that these are real people that are just, comfortable around each other even though they're trying to navigate what life feels like after the most horrific moment that they probably could ever imagine ever happening to them and it just i don't know it it really this time watching it just all of those little tiny moments really jumped out at me i feel like that's one of the values of a movie like this is that um it's not trying to scare you constantly and the runtime is all like headed toward this this ending ultimately and i feel like it was able to take time showing slices of life. Like if someone said, Hey, you want to see a slice of life horror movie? I'd say, no, (laughs) like there's no way, but this movie has that aspect to it where it's like, I'm just going to show a conversation with a a hotel worker. Yeah. Seemingly has nothing to do with anything. It's like taking too long, but it's so interesting. And the way that the way that they talk or awkwardly laugh, it's all interesting. And it's all building toward, like you're saying the lived in this Terry that like is part of it it's part of what the movie's trying to do and it does so effectively yeah it's my favorite use of nudity i've seen in a movie in a long time too just like again nudity is normal it doesn't have to be sexualized doesn't have to be funny it's just like sometimes couples are just naked with each other like it's just like living and being people and this kind of interesting depiction of trying to go through what they think normal is even though obviously their lives have been absolutely rocked but they're still trying to go through these motions like because we have the opening where the daughter dies and we cut from julie christie screaming to them in venice so there's like this very big jump of like from like this very horrendous moment to okay they're trying six like six months i think or something later going through the motions trying to kind of like get 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 over it but that's not the right word but like kind of trying to pretend like everything is okay and then we see them like the grief kind of insidiously leaking in in interesting moments and i think it's such an incredible portrayal of grief that i never appreciated until i just rewatched this movie like last week for the podcast yeah uh 
it's it was weird watching this movie because um one of my friends like that I've known for like 16 years just passed away unexpectedly had a heart attack leaving a concert and died three days before we were supposed to first record this <laughs> so I was kind of happy that we had to postpone recording for a week because I didn't know if I was ready to talk about this movie because it literally literally just happened and the way that this movie kind of tackles grief in such a way that it feels like you're remembering things the past is coming in you're trying to live in the present you're also thinking about a future the way that this movie is very circuitous in that kind of train of thought like it felt like a perfect encapsulation for the the grief and granted i hadn't lose a kid but like the grief that i felt over losing someone that had been part of my life for almost 20 years so like there's like it just it's really effective and really it just like really hit me this time. And it was something that I didn't appreciate the first time I saw this movie, which I just like loved the the way that it built up to that surprise ending. Whereas now I'm like watching this going, Oh my God, no, this is, if I were to tell someone what does grief feel like, it'd be this movie to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I usually feel like grief movies aren't for me and they don't in my mind, they're just sad, but it doesn't feel there's nothing special or it doesn't feel like it's making a contribution to my soul as I'm watching it in some kind of way where this does. And one of the ways that it does this to me where I feel like, um, oh, this is a real grief depiction is like seeing after right after the daughter's death, Donald Sutherland, Julie Christie, they have a shared experience with their Mm -hmm. grief. They're going through it in the same way and they're fine in their marriage because of it. It's like they're sharing this um, thing in the same way. When she encounters the sidekick and gets told that the girl is there with them and suddenly she's changed and she feels like she's her, she has joy and she has this new perspective that her daughter's there. They're no longer sharing the same right. grief. It's a different experience for each of them. And you can see how Donald Sutherland is grieving, not just the loss of his daughter, but no longer having this shared experience with his wife. And that was, I did not notice that the first time, but now that I'm married to Vanessa and we've had this companionship for a really long time, the shared experience in like even dealing with the stress of a film shoot is so important to me. And if there's a situation where I'm having a hard time with something that she's not and she can't understand it. It's a lot more painful. And I could see that happening in this film. And it's It's almost like like Donald Sutherland feels a little bit betrayed by her empowerment, which is so heartbreaking. My heart is just so broken for Donald Sutherland's character the whole time. It's kind of like his grief is just, it's coming for him. And it's kind of like all the people around him are, I don't know if if you call it embracing the supernatural, but embracing some kind of like higher meaning except for him. And it feels so threatening to him. Yeah. Even his, his gift, like, I don't know. I'm trying, I'm not saying smart things about this movie anymore, (laughs) but I want somebody smart to talk about. The thing that kind of splitting that like really jumped out at me this time was where Laura's belief in like, and that the fact that the sisters see Christine sitting with them and that there might be kind of an afterlife that maybe there's some kind of connection there. And that's kind of fueling her like healing process. Whereas he doesn't seem to be able to accept that. And there's a really interesting moment. I clocked this because I've, I've watched this twice in, in a week now where he, she, she's trying to say, you know, 
she is not alive, but she's, we can still see her and she is with us. And he's like, my daughter is dead. And it's like that. My, it wasn't like our daughter is dead. He says, my daughter is dead. Christine is dead, 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 dead. And he goes off on like this rant about it, but it's like this moment of like, why don't you understand she's not with us anymore. And the past is, he kind of sees it as the past holding on to her and that she's never going to be able to get out of this, which again, the movie so masterfully does because it's so circuitous and it's, way of dealing with what happened that this divergent path between the two was just so heartbreaking in that moment that like, it just like really leapt out at me that they have this roadblock between them because they're both approaching it from different perspectives instead of being able to talk to each other. And it was so heartbreaking this time. Well, and also I think what was, what stuck out, especially about the betrayal, like you said, Vanessa, was in so many horror movies, we get kind of like the woman's side of grief. We see her being very sad and her husband being like, suck it up, like, you know, like putting that's reductive. But this one shows a united front almost in grief. And like they're having a very similar experience together. And then we see it diverge. And you, I feel like in horror, you don't see that. You usually see you everyone. Obviously, grief is a very individual experience, but in this one, we see them kind of grieving together. And then once you see them almost separating because she's finding this comfort and explanation. And he's like, I basically like he, you know, he found his daughter. He was the one that pulled her out of the water. He had this like very physical interaction with her dead body and is this kind of revelation. And he's like, okay, cool. So we're no longer on the same page about this. And now I'm alone mm-hmm. in this. Like, yeah, grief is such an isolating experience. And now I'm even further isolated from mm-hmm. the person I thought understood this more than anybody else. And that's so heartbreaking to see that kind of, you know, it's never said, but it's so it's portrayed so well just through dialogue and through Donald Sutherland's performance of what it feels like to be, oh my God, like the person I loved the most who had gone through this horrible thing to me, we've been bonded by this. They no longer are on the same page as me. And now I am fully alone. And now we're in a foreign country. We are in Italy. We don't speak the same language. I can barely speak Italian. I don't really understand Italian. And now you're going off talking about ghosts with these two strange old women. And like, now I'm fully just isolated. And it's so sad. Like, it's really sad to see that character go through that. And it's portrayed so well and so masterfully. And it's just heartbreaking to see him experiencing that. It's like he's grieving all over again. Like now he's grieving for his wife. He feels mm-hmm. like it's almost like yeah. he's grieving for the person he no longer knows. Like all like he all of a sudden no longer knows his wife almost. And it's just like, oh yeah. And then the movie just like piles on that with him actually feeling like she's missing. Yeah. So it's yes. like, I don't know. You're just feeling for the poor guy. And it's almost like you almost feel like Donald Sutherland's carrying around like a sin, like by having the gift, he's doing something wrong, but you're like, what, what is he doing wrong? Like there's nothing that you can really put your finger on. And I think maybe that represents his guilt of like, he's carrying around something, even though it's not real. I don't know. I don't know. But the, the mood, man, the mood. And literally I wrote (laughs) down my last note while watching this movie was this movie makes me feel stupid. (laughs) and like as it ended i didn't feel that way but like it just is doing so many cool things and it's like almost overwhelming like overwhelming your senses of like i feel like there's so many cool things going on here that i am not fully comprehending and i am not intelligent enough to understand (laughs) what's going on but i love what i'm watching and i love the experience but i don't know if i fully comprehend it and it's just 
fuck, it's such a good fucking movie. My professional assessment. <laughs> we're making it sound so intellectual, but also as a horror movie, it just delivers. But like, I think I think it's scary as hell. You, like yes! even without all of the character development, but you have to watch it where you can give yourself to the movie. Yeah. Yes. And yes. otherwise, you're gonna be like, "This is boring piece of shit." Like kind of thing. You gotta put yourself in a dark room, get offline, and mm-hmm. you can't put your phone away. Like you really do have For to pay sure. attention to it. Like this is a movie that demands your attention, and yeah. it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I- one of the things that also does really well is this idea of miscommunication because the couples are miscommunicating with each other. They're both reading the signs completely wrong. Like there's danger in Venice. You got to get out. They're each seeing this as different moments. She sees it as, oh, John, who's at Johnny, who's at, you know, boarding school, he got hurt. This must be that omen. He, uh, John Sr. falls out of like the scaffolding in, in a very masterful shot sequence and he's he thinks oh that maybe that's the danger they're talking about everyone's misreading the signs meanwhile as they're talking in italian there's no subtitles like the movie does not use subtitles whatsoever which gives like this sort of disconnect between what we're seeing and what's actually happening we have to pick things up through visual cues and kind of piece things together along with with what's happening in the narrative where they're trying to read the different signs and figure out what's going on and figure out who this person in red is moving through the streets and there's murders happening and there's uh, omens and there's psychic and there's grief and there's all this stuff, but we're misreading those signs just as much as we're not able to really, unless you speak Italian, really able to understand what is being communicated with everyone in Venice. It just gives this sort of uh, isolation. It just incorporates that isolation so well in a simple thing of not having subtitles. Dude, one of my favorite moments in the film is right after Donald Sutherland almost falls to his death. He's walking with the priest to the river and he starts talking about like, I think this may be the thing that my wife was talking about, the, mm-hmm. like a prophecy or something. And he almost finds relief yeah. that it's real, like that there is right. a greater yeah. meaning or maybe he can. Real, like maybe his wife's experience is something that he can like latch onto. But then it's almost immediately taken away as soon as he like the body is being dragged from the water and you can just see in his face him going back to this like nihilistic type place of, I don't know, despair. And maybe I'm projecting that all onto his face because he's such a good act- actor. But I love that moment. But the guy can't catch a break. He can't have <laughs> no. a moment of feeling any kind of relief throughout it because there's that. There's also he almost gets out and he's on the boat and he finally he's going back home. And he sees his wife on a boat going the other direction. And the first yeah. time you watch it, you don't know that it's not, it's, you don't know that it's not his wife, that it's a premonition. Because what's cool about this movie is in moments like that, in the, in the shining, when there is a, a shining moment or vision, it cuts into a vision and you know that that's what's happening and it's scary in its own way. And this, you can't tell the difference. Like he sees no. this premonition as a real, seen in his life um and then it turns out after he dies he was just seen a step ahead to right after he dies and his wife coming in for his funeral um dressed in black and it's just handled so well in an unusual way it's not the only movie to do this but it's so it's very it feels very special when you're watching it like a, a special kind of cinematic horror experience yeah i also love the like comment on reality where it's kind of like he's been critical of his wife for her questionable perception of reality. 
but he's actually the character that's having the hardest time distinguishing between yeah. real life and reality. And I just love movies that delve into that, like, what is reality area? Well, it goes, it goes yeah. back to the miscommunication, too, because she's on a she's on a funeral boat. Like, it is a funeral boat. They are dressed in funeral attire, but he is so shook by the fact that it's his wife who's supposed to be in England, who's back in Venice now, and that he's, again, misreading these cues that, like, yeah, okay. If my if my significant other was going down a river in a funeral, I'd have so many questions. But it's like all <laughs> these like little things that that he's missing because he is so caught up in not understanding what's actually happening, vice what is right in front of him. And it goes back to in the very beginning of the movie, he begins the the film by saying nothing is what it seems because his wife is talking about um, his daughter, her their daughter who asked about if the world is round, why is ice on lakes, you know, flat? And she's digging into and finding out and finds out that there's their actual curvature. And he's like, nothing is what it seems. And then later on, when they're in the, in the uh, uh, restaurant, he tells her, you know, seeing is believing. So it's this idea of like seeing is believing, but also nothing is what it seems. And this movie takes both of those and just sort of like compounds that that confusion so well. It just uh, there's so many little moments that I think I think what makes this movie so special special is that you could give twenty different critics and say go write a piece about this, and they're all going to latch onto something different and have different readings have different things between like the editing of it or the the themes and there's everyone's gonna be able to write something completely different because there are so many little tiny things in this movie that it's doing so masterfully also for sure everybody like the red boots for me Mm -hmm. i was trying to guess what it was but like those kinds of moments stand out to people as meaning something it's going to mean something different i'm the kind of person who likes to know that the director knew what it meant like had a specific idea um but it kind of it for sure, like in The Shining, all these things that don't make sense, I have this faith that the creator of it knows what it means. And that's important to me, but I have no idea what it means. <laughs> right. Like there's speaking of the red, there's also that ball that's in the beginning of the movie that their son is playing with. And then someone else in Venice has the exact same ball. There's like mm-hmm. these little tiny mirror images and, and doppelganger moments that this movie kind of puts out there, like the, the the woman in the in the rain slicker and the kid in the rain slicker and and the fact that uh there's a moment when the inspector says age makes women grow to look more like each other men decay and be- each become distinct but women seem to converge and there's this idea of all these realities sort of converging together in mirror images doppelgangers that kind of aspect it's just i don't know it's fascinating to me i didn't i never made that connection until this moment about that thing happening like his wow oh my this is the first time i'm realizing it because his daughter as he's young and then the woman is old at the mm-hmm. end but they're the same that they're the first wow there's so much <laughs> i thought it was just clever small talk because the guy just keeps pestering him about this theory he has and donald sutherland won't say yes he'll just it's <laughs> <laughs> right. like awkward laughs about it but that's cool there's so many little moments like that. It just peppered through that. I think if you watch this movie 20 times, you might start to pick up different. It's, I don't, it's just, it's wild to me. It's wild. Yeah. Also, also the danger of knowing the future. I mm. love that this plays with that. I think that that that's something that's always scary to me. Like if you can't look into the future, just don't, 
don't look now. Just kidding. <laughs> 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 that on that note, bye. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> there is one other thing that really jumped out at me this time. The idea of causation. So like there's this throughout this entire movie, there are these little tiny events that are rolling into the snowball of the, the end reveal. So we have in particular, there's the moment in the restaurant where we're they're in Venice. They're sitting there. He says it's getting cold and he goes and closes the window. Him closing the window causes the door to open, which causes something to fly into the eye of one of the sisters who goes over and ends up tripping over and, and getting involved with, with uh, Laura, who goes to the restroom to help them out. If that, hap- if that didn't happen, if he hadn't closed that window, this story would have played out so differently. And there's all these little tiny moments that are just like, if this happened, then this happened, and this happened. And eventually he's getting his throat slit by... A little old woman it's like this this weird kind of causation thing that just there's so many well, levels and it leads to like this inevitability thing which is one of the things that mm. scared me the most about hereditary which i think there are some really interesting parallels between those yeah. two movies but that's another podcast but i think <laughs> like it plays the inevitability and like this night we talked about nihilism especially with donald Sutherland's character but i also feel like there's a, the whole film has this nihilism and like even if you can look into the future you don't actually know what you're seeing because right. like we always like, you know, we have this sister, we have like the mystical blind person, which is all we always have is like being able to see things and kind of tell and warn you. But then you have Donald Sutherland who has a similar gift, but is like, I don't know what the fuck I'm seeing. This kind of prevalent nihilism of like, no matter what you do, man, like you can't, you, you don't know what you're seeing. You don't know what's going on. Like Even if you can see the future, you don't know, you don't know how to interpret it. So it's like one thing to be able to see it, but it's the other to understand it. And in that ability to, to not understand you there, you're, that you kind of just walk into the trap. So there's like this pre- prevalent nihilism here that I think is so fascinating as well. Yeah, it's almost like he, uh, Donald Sutherland's punished for fighting against the inevitability. It's yeah. like it definitely has this feeling of like, what's going to happen is what's going to happen. And him pushing, giving pushback to that is just keeps getting him in deeper and deeper. Yeah. I hate that. I hate that. We have control. Yeah. Right. I have control of my own life. It's fine. It's all fine. Well, the other moment that literally jumped out at me on this last rewatch that goes on with this, the idea of causation is when they're having the seance and it's Laura and the two sisters and uh, John is trying to kind of eavesdrop and he goes into their to the, the hallway outside her door. And he's like accosted by the people in the hallway and he's like English, English. And he he ends up leaving. Well, later on in the movie, they're like, we had to switch places because there was a prowler about. So he is literally the reason why they ended up switching hotels. And because they switched hotels and he went to go take her to the hotel is the reason that he sees the woman in red. Like there's all of these little tiny things that it's like that. That's ripples. Totally I didn't I realize they were either. talking about him, but that's yeah. totally totally what yeah. they were talking about just so many like and that literally this last time i was watching this i was like holy shit that's he's the fucking prowler well now i gotta rewatch this movie again like tonight <laughs> and like make i'm gonna be like that that fucking screen cap from always sunny with charlie day with, with like, like the, with like the, the conspiracy board behind him he's pointing at it it's gonna be me just like <laughs> it goes all the way to the top <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um well do uh. 
talk about this movie for like six hours. But we do we want to wrap this up now and give it a rating out of five before we become sucked into an, our own hole of nihilism and inevitability. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds yeah, good. Yeah, and, and running out of babysitter time. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah. That's, the only, that's the only motivation oh, that's I have you know, to stop talking good, about this. Yeah, you know what? Good point. Okay, Terry. So, how many red <laughs> raincoats out of five do you give? Don't look now. There's no beating around the bush. This is a five raincoat movie. This movie is is yeah. perfect. Yes. I love. I just. I love everything about it. I love the way the movie is structured. The editing of this movie is sublime. That just. It's it's a perfect movie. The end. What about you, Mary Beth? Yeah, five out of five. The more I think about it, the more it's just like Jesus Nicholas Rogue, the director who would go on to direct Witches, which is another movie that terrified people on this podcast. So oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. So everything about this movie is just absolutely stunning and incredible and comes together into this wild conclusion that you immediately want to watch the movie over again. So five out of five, perfect. Chef's kiss. Um, but Joseph and Vanessa, you have the final word. How many red raincoats out of five do you give? Don't look now. Oh, five, five for, for sure. sure. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like <laughs> even before the rewatch, it's always been since that first screening, a five raincoat film in our minds and it really to me the appreciation went way up the second time through i didn't think that it could because it was such a special experience for us but it's it's so good like you're saying layers you can watch it many times and pick up on different things yeah one of my favorite movies i'm so glad you guys liked it that would have been awkward if you guys were like eh. <laughs> this movie's boring bullshit <laughs> <laughs> That would have been so awkward, but good thing we all are obsessed with it. That's all. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for joining us to talk about this movie. Where can our listeners find you? And do you have anything that the floor is yours? Do you have anything you want to talk about or, or plug? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Joseph Winter VHS. And I'm Vanessa M. Winter. And uh, yeah, I guess VH, VHS 99 because it's coming out on the 20th. October 20th. Uh, Deadstream is out right now. On Shutter, both of these films are on Shutter. Go oh, watch yeah. them! All right, listeners, you've heard from us. If we want to hear from you, what was your experience with Don't Look Now? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail or reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at mb mcandrews, and I'm a gaily dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcasts. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe, and maybe support us through Patreon. Thank you, thank you, to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. <laughs>
These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com